I'm Linda Yu, I'm a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall, and my new forthcoming book is called The Future of Asian Trade and Growth. I'm Professor Jonathan Mickey, the president of Kellogg College and editor of the book The Handbook of Globalization. I'm Martin Slater, uh, I'm also a fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall. This financial crisis has certainly raised the issue of how do we regulate banks. Now there are a number of topics here, but we thought in this panel that we would tackle the big one that's being discussed of late, which is if banks, which are too big to fail, are they then considered to be too big? If so, then is the solution to split banks into narrow retail banks, the high street type banks that make loans and take deposits, as opposed to the investment banks, or some have called those casinos disguised as banks. And we will go through the pros and cons, the arguments for and against an idea, this idea, of splitting banks into the government-guaranteed narrow banks versus keeping the two banks, the two type of banks, in one entity, which is what we have at the moment, but simply do what governments around the world are now proposing, which is to increase the capital requirements. Um, in other words, the amount of capital that banks have to hold. So the more risky banks are better capitalized. Is that enough? I, I think you need a, a combination of, of um, measures. And one of, I mean, I should say that, yes, I think it would be um, certainly a step in the right direction to um, split the banks between the, the regular um, um, consumer banking type activities on the one hand and the, the respective casino um, activities on the other. Um, and it's important to remember where that came from because, because of course, that, that um, was introduced precisely as the reaction to the Great Depression of the 1930s and the, the 1929 Wall Street crash, which had, had caused it. And that remained the case throughout the, that, that split, throughout the um, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And then it was, it was just one of the many ways in which the uh, financial sector lobbied during the, the 1980s for more uh, deregulation, more freedom just to, to um, do what they want really and, and, and push this idea that, that um, growth in the, the banking financial sector was just good for the economy, it was, it was um, um, the, the way forward for the economy and, and they did you know, in, in almost every country um, get governments to agree to, to deregulate, to, to privatise, to uh, use so-called light-touch regulation which has since turned out very much be soft-touch um, regulation. So I think that, that would be um, beneficial. Uh, for, firstly, for the reason you say about you don't want to be in a situation where, where banks are too big to fail, or indeed any company is too big to fail, because it's important to recognise that, I mean, one of the problems is just pure scale. You know, if you have, I mean, as has been said with the recent crisis, maybe some of the American car companies turned out to be too big to fail. If you have any companies um, of that scale, it's difficult for a government to allow them to, to go bankrupt because the, the hundreds of thousands of people who lose their jobs and, and send the whole economy into a further downward spiral. So breaking up the banks like that would certainly have that advantage, just making um, the, the uh, 
companies uh, smaller, but it, it also means that the purely speculative uh, side of the, the banks could be allowed to go fail if they, if they bet the wrong way, lose their, their bets and, and uh, um, do go bankrupt. Whereas it's the other uh, consumer banking side, which is less likely to fail if all it's doing is taking in savings and, and making loans to consumers. But it, if for whatever reason it did get into trouble, then that is a, a case where, um, a much more um, of a case where uh, government should um, step in. So uh, to answer that question, I, I think it would be beneficial to split them, but I mean that, that shouldn't be seen as, as a, a cure-all in itself. But I think that uh, we do need to, to ensure that the lessons are learned across the, the whole range of better regulation, certainly more capital requirements, um, tackling the, the bonus culture and, and these incentives to, to take risks and so on. And, and actually a, a key point of all that should to be to have a, a biodiversity of, of um, um, ownership and organisational structure in the financial sector so that if the economy is hit by a certain type of, of shock, you don't have a domino effect where all the banks, all the financial institutions are, are um, affected in the, the same way. And I've argued this, um, particularly in the case of, of the UK economy, where uh, traditionally a lot of the financial sectors were owned not as privately owned um, banks, but as so-called mutual um, building societies owned by their uh, customers. And one of the famous, well, one of the ones which became famous internationally because of the, the media photos around, around the world was, uh, was one called Northern Rock, which was very successful for many decades. It then demutualized, was in effect privatized, just became a private bank, and then entered into all the, the sort of speculative activities that private banks did, which led up to the, the global credit crunch. And that was the one where there were the photos of people, the bank rush, people queuing up at the door all night in order to demand their money back the, the next morning, the sort of picture which had been, um, we, everyone had thought had been um, abolished forever. So that's now had to be nationalised, owned by the government, and they're, they're wondering what to do with it. And I've written a report which any listener can get free of charge by downloading, downloading it from www.kellogg.ox.ac.uk, where I and, and uh, other authors argue for that being returned um, as a mutual organisation owned by um, its members. And part of the argument there is not just to increase competition in the, the sector, but also to increase the diversity of of ownership types and um, um, governance structures within the financial sector. Martin, can I ask you for an argument against the split of, of banks in this way? So in other words, the policymakers at the moment are all pretty much, with the rare exception, are going down the road of demanding higher capital requirements rather than splitting banks into retail and investment arms. Not to say there aren't those which propose it, Bank of England um, governor um, is proposing that, but most governments are seemingly internationally going down the not going down that road. They're going down the road of capital strengthening capital requirements. So, so possibly could you air some arguments on the other side for us? Right. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I think first of all, I think it must be admitted there, there is no magic bullet. There's no single system that is going to guarantee against all bank failures or all or, or kind of nastinesses that might be associated with bank failures. Uh, each particular system proposed uh, some things going for it uh, and maybe not others. Um, personally, personally I, I find the idea of separation and narrow banking quite attractive, but there are difficulties in practice 
I don't think they're insuperable, uh, but they would have consequences. And uh, one might want to ask whether those consequences um, are things one wants to live with. One particular problem to begin with, uh, I think, is that people have a, a, a rather simple idea that you can divide the financial sector into these two cosy categories. There's your high street retail utilities, as it were, which are the, the public function that we want to protect. And then on the other side, there's the casino banks. And the casino banks really is much better if they are left unregulated, are unguaranteed. They can do their speculating. If they fail, they go down. Nobody sheds any tears. Um, and uh, that's, that's the way they live. And they will not actually uh, bring high street banks down with them. That, that, that's the, the nice idea. Um, I don't think it quite works like that, you see, because really, in a way, there, there's a, there are the high street banks on one side, there's the casino bank, casino industry on the other. And in the middle, unfortunately, there's really what I would call the industrial banking sector, which is a bit of both. And uh, uh, that is actually a very large volume and very important, and it's, it's not clear precisely which side of the divide that would be. Um, and the second, the, the, the problem is that you really need, if you're going to have uh, a separation of narrow banks, you really need a very careful limitation of what these high street banks can actually do with their money. And the kind of proposals that I've seen suggest that the high street banks would be limited to uh, making uh, ordinary kind of consumer loans, uh, that they could invest in very safe securities like government stock, uh, but obviously they shouldn't be allowed to get involved in investing into these exotic uh, financial products that, uh, that have caused us such problems. Um, well, that can be done, and it has been done, although history suggests that there are very strong incentives on the players to find ways of getting around that. Um, for instance, in the, in the UK in the 1970s, when we did have uh, still a form of separation um, in this, this way. We, we went through a period which was known as, known as the secondary banking crisis where these carefully segregated high street banks had of course noted that there were very much more profitable things they could do with their money than these very safe uh, investments that they were allowed to do. They weren't actually allowed to make these uh, investments themselves but they developed various ways in which they channeled the money through indirect routes and it eventually got this highly profitable business. And when that highly profitable business blew up, then the high street banks discovered that actually, of course, they were heavily involved and in fact they didn't even know how heavily they were involved. So, so that, that's a problem one has to be, be quite careful to see how you're going to, to, to control that. The other kind of thing that um, the, the problem that it, it produced was it produced a, a, various, a set of complaints from various players in the segregated uh, sectors that, of course, they were at some kind of competitive disadvantage with regard to other, other people. So, supposing we have a situation in which there are indeed guaranteed high street banks but they are not actually allowed to invest their money in very profitable loans, 
then there will be other institutions which will grow up, which will look very like guaranteed high street banks, will compete in the same market for deposits with those institutions, uh, and they will not be subject to the limitations on what they can invest their money in. Therefore, they will make more money. Therefore, they will be able to offer more competitive deposit rates to the, the potential savers, and they will begin to take money away from the, the guaranteed sector. And that was exactly also what happened in the 1970s and 80s, and it was very much complaints from the guaranteed sector that, that gradually whittled away the, um, the restrictions and, and uh, uh, almost free-for-all was actually put in its place. Um, well, uh, clearly what, what the counter-argument of that is, of course, well, the, these other institutions don't have the guarantee, and therefore uh, the potential depositors have only got themselves to blame if they put their money into, shall we say, the future equivalent of Icelandic banks because they give high interest rates and at the later stage you discover quite why it was that they were able to give you those high interest rates. But, but that is the sort of thing that I think one has to, to, to think quite, quite hard about. And thirdly, I suppose, the, the other thing that, that, that recent history has taught, taught us is that, unfortunately, the bankruptcy of non-banks can also be just as bad. You see, uh, Lehman Brothers was not a high street bank, but when it went down, it took lots of people with it. AIG was not a bank at all, but its failure would have been disastrous for the, uh, for the financial sector as a whole. So it's possible that if the casino side of the, uh, of the financial sector is made up of relatively small institutions which individually can fail without causing great knock-on effect, then we would get the beneficial effect. But if in fact the casino side is still dominated by very large bodies, then when they, they get into trouble, then I think the whole financial sector will be in trouble um, irrespective of that. Now again, you see, it's the question of interconnectedness. Why was Lehman Brothers a problem? It was because it was heavily interconnected with um, Counterexample, of course, if you go back a little further in the UK, you know, we had the failure of Barings Bank, which again was uh, almost a classic casino bank. It was broken by sort of one disastrous decision, or disastrous throw of the, uh, throw of the dice. Um, and actually, it went down, uh, lost all its money overnight, and it really had very little knock-on effect on that on the other parts of the financial sector. So that was a bank that was small enough within the context of the whole financial sector and not too connected with everybody else in the financial sector to make this, this segregation work. But you know, what it would mean, I think, is that not only would we want to, um, to make sure that there was a, a kind of, as it were, a vertical separation between uh, banks, but we, we would want to actually keep banks small, uh, we would still have to regulate to stop uh, massive, um, massive accretions of power in that ca casino side of the banking sector. I think two issues which always struck me throughout this crisis um, was one, deposit insurance, and two, the opacity of the linkages within the financial sector, the so-called broker-dealer model. So the bank run upon Northern Rock that Jonathan mentioned, certainly one of the problems was that 
Britain has a very low payout at the time of deposits, insurance, so people were worried about losing their money. And probably even worse for many people, they never got their money very quickly out again from the government, even from the deposit insurance scheme. Whereas if you contrast that to the United States, uh, lots of American banks go under, retail banks, deposit-taking banks, and there are no bank runs because the bank goes under on Friday, you get your check on Monday from the FDIC, the insurer, that the banks themselves pay into and support. So one of the reforms which they have discussed in this uh, new set of banking regulation is to ensure deposits up to a much higher level across Europe so you also get harmonization and a faster payout. So in a sense, it could take away some of the concerns of even the failure of retail banks if deposits are protected. So shareholders lose if they are publicly traded companies, but depositors don't. And many would say that was why Northern Rock was bailed out, was to protect depositors, not because it was big or systemically important, but because of, of deposits. And the other issue of the opacity of the sector, I think ties into what Martin was saying about size and complexity and knock-on effects, is the idea of a living will, which is now increasingly being um, debated and, and, um, and looks to be on the road of acceptance, despite a lot of complaints by banks, which is to make every bank disclose the amount of their linkages with other financial entities. So therefore, if you have a uh, casino-type operation or you take a great deal of risk, yes, you need financial regulation of risk on top of that. Um, if you have any retail division, the deposits are taken care of. However, even a hedge fund can bring down a financial system. And in fact, many argue that long-term capital management, a US hedge fund run by two Nobel laureates in economics, when it uh, was rescued in the late 1990s in the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, it was because the American government at the time thought this could trigger a financial crisis. So if banks can disclose how they would wind down in the event of bankruptcy, then you would probably naturally get a limit on size um, because banks have to simplify what it is that um, they do or raise so much capital um, that they can um, uh, have an orderly bankruptcy type of procedure. Um, for instance, converting some of, the, um, some of their um, uh, bonds, which can be converted into equity in times of of distress. So in that sense, a failure of even a casino bank may not jeopardize the entire financial system. Um, and in fact, I think Lehman Brothers, in retrospect, um, for the US government is a horrible um, instance where they did not think, I don't think at the time, that had Lehman failed, there would be this trigger of a global financial crisis, loss in confidence, which reverberated around um, the world. So I completely agree with everything which has been said. I think the arguments for having either narrow banks um, or um, the practicalities of not being able to do that certainly has a lot of other facets which have to be um, also considered. Um, but Jonathan, let me come back to you because I know you um, 
do argue for a return to mutual societies. Are you enamored of the notion, the argument put forward by Adair Turner, the chairman of the Financial Services Authority in the UK, who has written a very influential report, the Turner Report, which argues that banks should be socially useful given their special place in society and that, for the most part, we now know that governments are unlikely to allow banks to fail, despite many of the things that we have talked about today. Yes, no, absolutely. I think he's absolutely right to, to say that you know we should question um, the social usefulness of the size and scale of the uh, financial sector in, in any economy. But uh, if you do that, then certainly, say, the UK would be one way you'd, you'd question, well, is the financial sector perhaps rather bloated and the, the manufacturing sector um, rather too weak? You know, a too high a percentage of our Oxford graduates going into casino um, type activities in the city of London and a, a too small a proportion going into um, manufacturing and research and development and teaching uh, and so on. And indeed that's so, no, I agree with him and, and I think um, it, it is important to have um, a diversification of the um, economy away from the just financial perspective area into, into um, the real economy and hopefully into developing green, te green technologies and so on. Is it possible, though, to promote this kind of banking model where you have narrow banks funding socially useful funding in the economy? Is that, is that, is that workable, his idea of, um, of saying that um, we should go back to, say, an, an era of neutralization because bank managers may actually know their customers? Are there practicalities yep. involved there we have to think about? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the the um, um, strengths of the the mutual building societies um, in the UK. The fact they are owned by their customers, but also they tend to be quite local or regional, um, so that you know the, the bank manager would actually know the the um, um, industries, the, the local companies that that uh, um, were borrowing the the money and so on. And uh, obviously, I agree totally with Mark about the importance of industrial banks of lending to companies. I mean, maybe we should have a, a threefold division on the one hand, the high street uh, banks for, for individual individuals, um, secondly, industrial banks to, to promote uh, investment in research and development and so on for, for companies, and then thirdly, just the, the casino banks. And what would be interesting for the casino banks is not only um, um, ask that they write a, a living will to explain what they'll do when they, they go bankrupt, but maybe also ask what their purpose is. You know, are they serving any purpose other than to try to make the uh, clever uh, kids who go in there uh, make them rich? I mean, is there any purpose then whatsoever other than just to try to make uh, make money? And if there is no other purpose than that, well, then certainly if you're a fully employed economy, uh, and so that that um, um, you have to question where your graduates are going to, then if they're going to the, to that purely uh, casino um, banking side of the, the economy, you know, you can question what the the usefulness of that is and take that into account when you're thinking about um, taxation uh, levels for the sector as well as things like bonus culture if you uh, abolish bonuses then then um, maybe that will make that a less attractive option and, and going into industry or teaching or, or health sector uh, a relatively more attractive sector so as well as all that i would say on your particular um, question does then um, in the real sector of the economy if you like the the uh, um, in a, a number of countries have had different, very successful sort of financial institutions which aim particularly to support, say, ethical businesses or, or 
green investment or local investment. And certainly in, in the UK, I mean, the, the Cooperative Bank, which uh, has long held ethical policies, I mean, they refused to invest in uh, apartheid South Africa you know, 20 years before um, anyone else caught on to uh, the idea. I mean, they've continued to do extremely successfully throughout the, the uh, global credit crunch and the, the current uh, depression, despite the fact that they, they will not invest in any unethical business and they don't uh, involve themselves in these purely uh, speculative casino activities. Martin, can I come to you for some, again, sorry to put you on the side of making arguments against this, but um, it seems to me that many of the, uh, the skeptics might argue that we cannot return to an era without financial innovation, and it's just you cannot roll the clock back. And even if Britain goes back to an era of neutralization, surely all of our financial sector will just go abroad uh, to countries which have never had a tradition of neutralization. And to believe in free markets and financial innovation, but regulate. So, for instance, the United States. Well, perhaps this comes back to the other question about what is the social value of the financial system? Now, if one takes the view that the, the basic social function of banking is A, essentially to provide a utility payment system that, that keeps transactions going in the economy, and B, to act as a vehicle for, um, for bringing together lots of small savings and s small savings that people uh, individually want to keep, so far as they're concerned, in relatively liquid forms, but can be actually wholesaled together by the banking system into much larger quantities, which can actually be then um, moved into the industry as a relatively long-term investment. Uh, that's the great social advantage of uh, a fractional banking system, that it actually allows the, the social utilization of, of a lot of savings in that kind of way. Now, if those are the things that stay with us, and if we think that the casino banking is essentially a zero-sum game, then it isn't terribly obvious what the loss to the UK economy is of a lot of that going abroad. Um, Taxes? So, hmm? Taxes? <laughs> Well, a certain amount of taxes, but taxes that come with, as we see, a contingent liability. So yes, you know, we may make money in taxes out of bankers in most good years, but if we have to, at the cost of that, to bail them out every few decades at an enormous rate, then we may find that is actually a very profitable trade. So, so, yeah, I, clearly a lot of that will possibly leave. Being a little more subtle and perhaps a little more cynical, you see, one might say, well, supposing most of the casino banking is really about managing international funds rather than UK funds, Russian billionaires, foreign sovereign wealth funds and the like, uh, well, if our UK bankers are exploiting the foreigners mercilessly in that kind of way, then that is a very good thing for the UK economy, although it may not be a very good thing for the world as a whole. 
um, and uh, you know, from the point of view, the view of the UK economy. If, if that's all that is going on, and indeed if there were not potentially nasty knock-on effects in the UK economy, then one would say, yes, yes, we want to keep the casino banking onshore, and we want these people to make money exploiting nasty foreigners, and we, we will tax them accordingly, and therefore we would be a little concerned about them going to Switzerland or places like that. There's a lot more to talk about. The um, loss of confidence with the Dubai credit crisis tells us that this issue is going to run and run. I think this panel, if I might say, and please do disagree, is rather sympathetic to the idea of a separation between the socially useful banks and the others. And it will, I think, as I say, run and run. Um, but I think what has become very clear is we now see that with the banks which are, and other institutions which are systemically important, if we don't get a handle on how to regulate the sector, then we will doom ourselves to repeated financial crises. Maybe not as large as this one, but certainly the history of financial crises around the world is they do erupt every few years. Um, and perhaps this is a time to make a change in that. <laughs>